0: good morning and welcome to the uh daily energy markets podcast it is uh, sunday april the 2nd it is the beginning of the first qu- for the second quarter i should say and then, and a reflection on the first quarter uh and one would have to say that oil price ends the first quarter in a very much upward move uh as goldman sachs described it last week uh, you know buy this is a dip apparently uh, and uh, nonetheless, it is, I think, a relatively uh, confusing picture, and I certainly welcome our 2 seasoned pros on the show today to give us some sense of reflection of Q1, and then we'll get to sort of outlook of Q2. Uh, it seems that the quarter ended, Q1, with, you would have to say, a very positive, optimistic, the return of that bull bull fever if you like nasdaq went into bull territory up 20 percent from the from the low at the end of the fourth quarter so despite the massive what was a banking crunch in the middle of march it seems everything turned to the end of being oh no problem nothing to see here everything's good so i'd really re- welcome the reflection of where uh, we think the first quarter, as we come out of it, uh, what we're taking out of it, and that from that narrative, indeed, we buy into that or not. Um, let's start with uh, Christoph Ruhl taking us on a slightly sort of macro view of that. Christoph Rule, of course, Senior Research Scholar, Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University, and with Mike kick off each month for us with this reflection and outlook. So, Christoph, your thoughts as we end Q1, uh, the idea of the, the Fed has peaked and now a lot of outlook for cutting cuts, cutting rates and so forth. What what are you buying at this stage as you reflect on Q1?
1: I don't see this bullish picture like you. The same Goldman Sachs, which now say it's a dip, but just a few days ago, have taken back their $200 forecast and when you look at how was it one one quarter ago, the price somewhere in the '90s, uh, and you know people like you probably arguing it can might go above 100. And uh, I, I just uh, would repeat what I said earlier. There's enough oil in the world. and Production even in the US is ticking up. Buffers are are very small, so there's always a chance for spikes when anything goes wrong. Potential for things to go wrong is huge, of course. But we are seeing a trend since the beginning of the year, which is stable and downward uh, pointing, so from the 90s into this corridor between 80 to 85, where it was for a long time, and now who knows, maybe a little bit below that corridor. And I think the big picture is driven by uh, short-term variations, you know, fluctuations in, in in oil prices and stock markets driven by the normal speculation. Relation on interest rate increases, growth in the US, growth in Europe, growth in China. But the longer term picture becomes clearer, and it is number one, slow growth in China. So by that I mean 4 to 5%, not 7, 8, 9%. Number two, no big bounce back without an additional stimulus in China for the simple reason that the Chinese have not, during their long lockdown, doled out money to consumers in the way Europe and the US have. Which explains this massive bounce back, which we have seen in those countries. Number three, steady growth in Europe and the US. So, whether this will turn technically into a recession, this almost doesn't matter. It's relatively high growth, relatively low uh, income, uh, low unemployment, sorry, mostly still on the back of these big handouts, which, which have uh, happened during the COVID time. And to that, number three, a no banking crisis because I currently see the current hiccups. Happening clearly because of management mistakes and, and problems in isolated banks, not not leading uh, with a very low risk of leading to a systemic bank run. Bank run. So I think for that financial instability threat, we have to wait a little bit longer. Uh, and when you step back, then overall. Uh, a situation where the world sort of seems to be growing at a healthy clip and i would expect stock markets at some point to come back but we on the energy side uh, supplies are sufficient to accommodate them so then from that stable position we have to look at the but and the biggest but of course of all would be the ukraine war and what that would mean and i still think there is a significant risk sleeping there because i do think the military situation and the political noise around it point to the West or large parts of the so-called collective West, have having made up a decision that they support the Ukraine also not only defend themselves, but also uh, in their coming offensive and their attempt to put pressure on Crimea by cutting the Eastern from the Southern Front. And if that happens and if Russia, Russia's military advances uh, unravel faster than we now think uh, and as fast as some military experts think, and if the Russian government would be cornered, then they would, of course, use the oil market in this ongoing economic warfare to, to derail the Western stable growth. And that is a, a high probability, no, I mean, it's a, it's below 50%, but still a relatively high probability event waiting to happen.
0: Right, right. Mike Muller, head of Vitrol Asia. Mike, throughout the events, conferences, energy gatherings that I attended in Q1, they were dominant and was, this is the year of two halves. The first half will, will, will from a demand and an energy price point of view, would be somewhat sluggish, uh, uh, the global you know, uh, G7 slowdown, uh, China not quite recovered yet, uh, 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 and, and, and the second half would be the bumper. Uh, your views on, does that narrative survive the first quarter and your reflections on Q1?
2: Yes, I think that narrative probably is still most people's house view. Um, but it is so much a function of Chinese demand rebounding, and China needs the global economy to cooperate in terms of providing markets for its exports, which is still a big, big part of the domestic economy we know that in china the property sector requires a, a fair bit of kickstarting still and uh i think we are beginning to see some encouraging demand data um which still defies expectations it is it is very very robust uh, and of course two sets of consecutive monthly pmis that are at the both basically the highest uh, data points in the last two years not surprisingly of course given the history um but on that basis there is still a lot of hope that china will um, will return to consuming uh, pre-COVID levels in those sectors where it still hasn't quite caught up, notably aviation, of course. And uh, China has, uh, with rather little notice now, opened up foreign markets to domestic tour groups and is now dropped all barriers for foreign tour- tourists uh, um, on top of the business travellers that, that have been able to go to China for the last two and a half months or so. So on that basis, you'd expect to see things picking up. That, that said, I was in China twice in the last month and a half. and uh, uh, Beijing International Airport is still a pretty quiet place. The duty-free shops are closed. Um, so that is not yet to full potential. But for the bulls out there, it obviously reassures them that, that demand is yet to come <laughs> because uh, there's a lot of capacity to be filled out, a lot of pent-up demand. But Christoph is quite right in saying there's not the same pent-up demand for holiday travel because whilst China is not a, is, is a society of people with a propensity uh, pre- to, uh, to save, um, at the same time, uh, there haven't been the handouts. And we mustn't underestimate that China has not been spared um, despite the fact that many of the enterprises are public sector, but they haven't really been spared the, the industrial closures and other impacts of COVID also, which have put a hole in parts of middle class China and arguably arrested the acceleration of uh, you know lower middle working classes into into middle class uh, society in China, which, which is the strata of society that starts spending not just on consumables, but also on international travel. Um, so that's that's the China side of things in terms of Q1. I mean, it's it's ended with a bit of froth, right? Um, because Brent pretty much touched eighty dollars on expiry. Please don't don't look at the May contract which expired because that isn't necessarily representative. If right. $80. But the dated Brent quote was at seventy nine, and that's uh, you mentioned the Goldman Sachs buy the dip. I mean, were they referring to the seventy one dollars? Uh, 10 days ago or do they still think this is this is part of the dip it's it's uh well
0: their, their correction on their call for the year they did uh revise earlier in the in march which was down from 100, over 100 to i think 94 95 so that you in order to get an average on 94 95 on brent you're gonna have to see some big moves to the
2: upside yes i mean that, the consensus out there a lot of people a lot of conferences as you say over the last few weeks have um, put out numbers that are north of 80 or even 90 uh, for the second half of this year based in part on what I just mentioned. But of course, then we had this little financial shock, which uh, took everything down with it because it, financial instability does. And of course, high interest rates uh, do hit small, medium businesses pretty hard and hit consumption. So there was a major crisis of confidence from which oil markets were not spared. The oil markets pretty much took the view that fundamentals in oil had not changed. Um, and then there were a bunch of uh, ingredients in recent weeks that uh, overlaid that. the um, messaging from the US that they were not likely to refill their SPR for mostly technical reasons. Um, the ongoing strikes in France and how that's hitting refineries and therefore crude oil demand into France, largely sweet crude, but also, of course, product output. Um, and then finally, um, some production beginning to be shut in as a consequence of the, um, the aftermath of the Paris uh, ruling uh, that the Kurdistan regional government uh, is to observe longer term treaties and essentially hand back control of marketing internationally of their crudes to Baghdad. Um so those those are the facts that ended up setting sentiment towards the end of the quarter.
0: Christoph I wanted to get your thoughts on the sort of narrative that grew during the financial shock uh which the banking shock uh, was that it put the central bank policymakers between a rock and a hard place so to speak that Although we were pre-financial shock, generally consensus was that we were getting to the peak rate plateau. Maybe they were going to be a bit more robust than initially thought of the first quarter. But ultimately, we had got to near peak. And uh, and the, the, the what's changed dramatically, it would appear, is that the, the, the peak narrative is still there, but the drop-off now of rates forecast by the markets in in the second half of the year is quite sharp. Uh, Your thoughts of where central banks go now, obviously inflation is still printing quite sticky and chunky above all targets. Do you buy into this rock and a hard place? Where do you think uh, the central bank policymakers go, and particularly uh, US, Europe?
1: It's a rock and a hard place and something else. It's this famous trilemma. You would expect in times like this, central banks to face a dilemma between, uh, when to create a recession is worse than bringing down inflation. So the trade of being lowering inflation and, 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 and raising unemployment and lowering output, creating a recession. Now it is that their trilemma, as somebody has said, uh, is between lowering inflation, avoiding a recession and stabilizing the banking system. To understand that and where this will go and why this is indeed i think dangerous is you have to step back a little bit and then what we have is a fundamentally different situation from 2008 in the sense that global debt levels on the private sector but also in governments have risen substantially they're completely at record levels in the aggregate between private the components of the private sector and for governments in major economies and that uh is makes these economies, of course, and their banking sectors vulnerable to uh, increased interest payments down the road. Uh, in the private sector, which makes the banks vulnerable and also for the for the governments. And people like me have for a long time, including on this show, argued that the central banks will be very unlikely in Europe and in the US at least to bring interest rates, uh, sorry, inflation rates back down to two percent. Because they will have to find a way of deflating the the debt of their governments, and so there is an element element of what is usually called uh, financial, you know, repression building up here in the sense that the treasuries the world over, and the, at least in the leading G7 economies, want to lower their debt levels. And one way of the doing this is to keep moderate inflation levels in place rather than bringing interest rates so up that they will snow, snowballs from the point of view of governments. And so what we are likely to see is a balancing act between uh, inflation rates staying above the 2% targets and central banks needing to find excuses for leaving them at 3 or 4%. Uh, and still meandering into a world where the, the electorate usually expects even more government expenditures for climate change, for war expenditures, for whatever we've gotten so used to, you know, the government pumping money in the economy or the central banks lowering interest rates and doing QEs, that it will be very hard to wean us off even to inflation levels around 3 or 4%. And then in the midst of all of that uh, potential instability created by this process of deleveraging, which still takes place, to get inflation rates from where they currently are lower, and I think the risk that uh, we see emerging market economies uh, less than AAA, triple, a, triple B-rated companies, and others tripping over as interest rates continue to either increase or stay at current levels, is substantial. And the 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 more these debt levels in the background limit the central bank's activity level anyway, the, the less room for maneuver they have to take it easy on the interest rate side. So I think down the road, it is the dry, it is the forces created by these huge debt burdens uh, at very finance and extremely low interest rates. It's ultimately, you could say, the punishment for years of you know spending uh, with very low interest rates and with QI as if there's no regard for any kind of fiscal discipline. That bill is still to come. And that means that there is a relatively high risk of financial instability and contagion in the cards. Yes.
0: Mike. The last time we had the chance to talk together a month ago, uh, we were talking about uh, the impact or the newly introduced price cap on products by the uh, G7 and the sort of sanctions on Russia crude oil in 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 uh, in december than products in february and you had indicated that it might lead to a lot of oil being uh, sort of sitting on ships uh, as as lawyers worked out the legalities of everything how did the first quarter progress uh, with the adoption of these uh, price caps and the, their impact? It seems everything moved smoothly and it was a non-issue. Is that an, an incorrect perception? How do you see it uh, the first quarter on that
2: point? Um, work in progress, I guess is the answer, Sean. Um There were a couple of other strands just to build the picture out. There was the declaration by Alexander Novak that Russia would take half a million barrels off the market, which initially didn't look like it was going to be the case. Then there was speculation, would it be products rather than crude? It does now appear that it is to be crude. Um, And then there was also the messaging around Sarah Week in Houston by uh, by the U.S. government, um, observing perhaps that uh, there were now flows that were quite okay. and legitimate for the conventional household name participants in the market to start re-engaging in so clearly the caps were set at levels which permitted some trade um the market has had to find ways of working its way through the assurances um which 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 if not um if not uh, observed by the three service providers we talked about last month namely the banks the insurance providers and the shipping companies um would result in shanks and sanctions on those three entities for for allowing russian trade above price cap so Um, in the knowledge that those assurances are not forthcoming from the source in Russia, um, it then follows that there had to be a a margin of uh, reasonable error, if you like. Um, Maybe I'll put that differently. There had to be no doubt at all that the prices uh, of cargoes that are being treated as below the price cap and therefore availing themselves of G7 services in those three support segments um, are definitively below the price cap. When prices fell ten dollars after the failure of um, Silicon Valley Bank and then Credit Suisse, um, we obviously had plenty of room to manoeuvre those price caps. There was then the middle of the month, at which time some participants expected a potential recalibration of those price caps from the G7, which didn't eventuate. So we now have a a situation where there are certain products that are uh, flowing quite easily below the price cap. Um, Imagine something like uh, diesel, for example, at a time when uh, Brent was at 70 and therefore Russian crude was well into the 50 area that gave you $50 of room for distillate cracks, which of course are no longer at $40, $50 a barrel, they're more like teens 20. Um, as a consequence, there's plenty of room for maneuver and companies have found ways of dealing with those flows, largely, however, to Asia, because we have to remind ourselves the price cap came on top of uh, an outright import ban into G7, which includes all of Europe. Right. So the biggest single change was a redirection of flows. And that you, you hinted at this at the beginning, the the expected stock build on the water. I think it's fair to say the stock build on the water has been a little less than some predicted, but it is still there. And people are commenting in many ways about that. But the other thing that seems to be happening is uh, transshipment and uh, staging, whereby flows of these barrels are moving into jurisdictions which are happy to store them and then either consume them or blend them or swap them out. And the combination of those three things... Um, a country that has the capability of taking Russian flows doesn't have sanctions and uh, then exporting more of what they make themselves uh, that has been the largest regulatory um, mechanism uh, to keep the oil flowing. And of course, everyone, uh, including the people that spoke at the Sarah Week in Houston, recognized that the large portion of Russian oil must continue flowing in order to keep oil markets stable.
0: And- the redirection i mean we're seeing flows even coming into the middle east here uh, uh, and the gulf and 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 being uh, others moving out this idea that you take in russian oil you, you tweak it a bit and you send it to g7 markets uh, is that of scale is it a
2: marginal not g7 market john um i think that's still an issue because tweaking a bit is, is there are some pretty strict rules around <laughs> around that um transformation by processing is what's required or by blending to a point where the cn code or the hs code in whichever jurisdiction you are changes which 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 for many products makes it impossible to just put it in the tank and tweak it a bit so i don't think you're seeing very much russian oil going into storage in the places you refer to it, and then make it back to g7 uh, most of it will make its way onwards to asia okay let's the, go g7 have, have imposed a ban there are pretty strict rules in place there yeah. Right. Let's take this survey
0: question and then redirect the conversation forward to the second quarter as our kind of last segment. <clears throat> this is the question I started with, obviously, and uh, we 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 think about uh, that we'll sort of roll out tomorrow uh, as the markets open. But uh, Goldman Sachs, as we all have said, has, has always been on the bullish end of the market, uh, um, calling this a dip. Price is going higher in Q2. I suppose that's probably should have said by how much, but <laughs> higher is probably not a difficult call. It would appear at least all the sentiment is in that direction. But Christoph, as you look to Q2, uh, what is your outlook for what is what could change from Q1? We're coming out of winter. We're going into maintenance season. Obviously, the war you mentioned in Ukraine typically heats up in the spring. What are you looking at at Q2 as you know milestones to keep an eye on?
1: I think again, if you put into perspective what you just discussed about price caps, and the world would be at exactly the same oil price I would postulate with or without the price cap, which doesn't bite. Uh, and for products, it's even more trusted, because there is a lot of tinkering doing place. And um, and you know when you, the rules are, when you modify it in a third country, then you can re-export it. So I think the sudden increase of refined products from the Middle East and the sudden increase of imports uh, are related. Looking forward, uh, it's going to continue to be, no matter what Goldman Sachs now claims, I don't understand how they get away with making these claims all the time. I would be poor if I would follow them. But uh, no matter those claims, we live in a world which is without disruptions, well supplied with oil, Uh, also in a world where now it seems to be that finally American production comes on a little bit, which is going to grow at at, at standard rates in the West, moderate rates in the East. So I think what we really need to watch out for, number one, is the war, because there is a promised counteroffensive, and none of us knows much about it. At least I don't know much about military techniques, but uh, if the war changes, then everything else will be shifted around again because it's such a high priority. So that's the number one risk. Number two um, is that we face an uncertainty on the economic side of how the world's perceptions will shift from the, the central banks being all unified in bringing inflation to this 2% target to the realization that, no, this is not going to happen despite all the rhetoric. There will be a permanently higher sort of basic rate of inflation, some, who knows, 3% plus, percent, uh, and how central banks then react to that and how those actors who have to correct their leverage and their interest rate exposures will act to that. So that that's another very important uh, thing. And number three is we are seeing then in Europe the adjustments for the, a bit early to say, but long-term planning for the next winter to start with the role of natural gas sort of permanently altering as Russian supplies will not resume. So this will be a boost of natural gas projects through Africa and other places in the world, uh, new energy projects, I should say. And the Question which arises here is, is in a world where commodity prices are no longer so sky high and are maybe beginning to de-escalate, and after the war is over, certainly will de-escalate a lot, what does that mean for the growth of renewables? How big is the appetite and the technical ability, really, and we should see that first in Europe because it's most advanced in that respect, to push ahead with the renewables agenda at a time where governments are not as rich, at a time where there's competition from a richer or more spend thrifty government in the U.S. in that respect, and at a time where the costs of renewables are no longer coming down as we used to. So it's really about finding smart solutions to now continue to bring up the share of renewables in power generation, in Europe in particular, to compensate for some of that more expensive LNG, which they would have to use otherwise, and to compensate for the losses from Russia. That would be my third uh, item on the agenda where one could see the beginning of policies for the rest of the year, which will be important for us only one or two years down the road.
0: Just a quick follow-up on that, Christoph. Do you think we've seen the, the back of the financial shock, the banking shock? Have they have they managed to sort of curtail it, dip it in the bud, so to speak, although Credit Suisse is a big bud? Uh, but do you think that's behind the markets now?
1: Of that short term, yes. But there's two threats out there. One is there may be more banks which have done mistakes, made mistakes as the Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, and, and the more profound threat is that as the adjustment takes place to higher rates of inflation and therefore higher, higher nominal interest rates, uh, and, and then not coming down as fast, then there may be ripple effects somewhere else in the financial sector, which we can't foresee, but we would be much more of a systemic crisis. This one here, again, was in retrospect, it's easy to say, but in retrospect, it was an isolated event caused by some poorly managed banks. I mean, basically, the risk policy of, of the Silicon Valley Bank and then the long history of, of dubious uh, deposit taking and, 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 and fights with the regulatory part of Credit Suisse.
0: Mike, your thoughts on, on on the second quarter outlook? Uh, where where do you see things going? Obviously, uh, the, the if we are to see the year of two halves, we're going to have to start seeing it in Q two, or the IEA is going to have to start revising down its uh, fairly robust bullish forecasts on demand growth, which they've put at well above two million barrels for the year.
2: Everyone's expecting Q2 to be relatively calm, but uh, the last six, seven quarters have shown us that there are many twists and turns to be had. I mean, Christopher's highlighted one, which is the the military arena in the Ukraine. um, And he's also highlighted another, which is the possibility of more poorly managed banks uh, uh, causing embarrassment to governments. But uh, ultimately, I think uh, we have a very large set of numbers, both on the demand and the supply side in terms of year on year demand and growth and supply growth change. Um, 1.6 something million barrels per day of extra supply growth, Uh, a lot of it from non-OPEC, which is investments pre-COVID coming to fruition in places like Brazil and Guyana and the West, et cetera. And then on the demand side, you've got this massive, massive number of either side of 2 million barrels a day, according to various consultants out there. And any small change in that is, is big deal in the context of historical years so we're still dealing with large numbers with large potential variations and therefore the prospect of more volatility um international travel in and out of china alone whether it's a, a slow fuse or it happens rather suddenly in the space of the next few weeks has the capacity to to change jet fuel demand by 100 200,000 barrels a day that's that's a big deal so um we have to we have to see i mean i do think that we're at a price level where where opec plus um have basically let the banking episode pass and uh, uh, have um, you know not not really flinched in that in that regards. So I don't think any signal from them or any price response um, is forthcoming. I I do think it was possible when we had WTI in the '60s and Brent in the in the '70s in the very low '70s and flirting with the high '60s. But uh, here at uh, $77 for the new June Brent contract, I think we're at a level where people are aren't too aren't too perturbed. So yes, I think the how supply and demand play out. As we get actuals coming through on a monthly basis, both in terms of non-op production, in terms of production declines, in terms of the, the Kurdish arena I highlighted earlier, which latest headlines suggest will be resolved by midweek, but we never know in that in that arena, of course. And uh, and then on the demand side in particular, not just China, places like India, where demand is in some areas on fire, is uh, you know, is gonna give us many twists and turns, I believe.
0: Mike, just to follow up, uh, the other event that's happening in the second quarter, it's more of a structural pricing thing, but uh, I wanted to get your views on it. Uh, uh, Dated Brent is going to embed WTI into its architecture. uh, uh, And I'm wondering, is that significant from your perspective? Is it a big change moment for the markets and its actors?
2: Um, I think... Obviously, now the June contract is the first contract that has that. But we've been trading June for many, many months already since the methodology change was announced. And therefore, the market is prepared for it and everything should be in the price. Um, there were some technicalities around the actual terms and conditions whereby Midland crude can only be delivered on a certain size of vessel into European ports, Rotterdam. Um, but again, that that those, those uh, fine tunings are not material to the change, which is that you have a very large amount of Midland that now... Sits as a cap above the established grades of 40s, Ecofisk, et cetera, in the North Sea, and add to an extra pool of liquidity. Um, The intention, of course, was to address the decline in the base, the underlying base of benchmark setting prudes in Europe. Um, This is the biggest volume supplement by far. And the intention is that Midland will sit above those grades in terms of value. Uh, When there are occasions that that is not the case, if Midland is the cheapest of those grades, then of course it'll be rather interesting. And it'll take quite a lot for it to be the cheapest because. You have to ship it from the US to the North Sea, transship it onto a smaller vessel and get it into Rotterdam and then net, net things back. Um, but yes, it does, uh, it does uh, portent a little bit more stability in the benchmark. And uh, I think the trade is ready for that. And on the whole welcomes it because the deeper the liquidity, the more reassuring the benchmark is for people that want to hedge. And in particular, for people who want to put long-term trades on um, for inflation hedges or portfolio hedges or relative value trades in the financial sector.
0: Yeah, so just to, what, again to follow up the, the other reason was at least a part of that because we're seeing so much us crude moving into asia that the the brent the brent as the global benchmark needed to reflect this new flow of us crude moving into asia which had reached you know has reached up to some 3 million barrels uh, uh, um going uh, uh, exported from the U.S. I wonder if you could just speak to that. Does that still make sense now, uh, given this whole new energy flows that have come in that were not at least in the picture when (laughs) this was announced first, i.e. all of this Russian oil coming into into Asia? I'm just wondering structurally, does that still make sense as a reference?
2: Uh, Until your very last sentence there, I wasn't quite sure I agreed. I mean, the world just balances out, right? The American oil, by Europe and goes straight to Asia, of course, and that will continue. Um, but yes, in a world where more Russian oil is forced into markets like China, the ability of China to take U.S. crude is diminished because the mass balance doesn't permit it. Right. So you're right. In that sense, it's possible that you could see a bit more Midland crude uh, having to compete for markets in the Atlantic Basin. Um, but that's the beauty of markets; they will they will balance out, and the market price will be set accordingly. So I think having Midland there as part of the Brent formula determining mix is generally something that is good and welcomed, yes.
0: Well, we'll wrap it up there. Absolutely wonderful to have you two at the table. Oh, I forgot the survey result, 50-50, agree and disagree, uh, uh, and we'll sort of roll that out on social media and see what the wider audience thinks on that point. It is um, a quarter in which Brent averaged in the low 80s, for the quarter uh likely for all the different reasons to probably at least do the same in the second quarter until we stumble across our first black swan of whatever that will be in the second quarter. I think there's one thing you can be sure of. There will be one. Uh, It seems we don't get very far, very long without something from left field. That's just the nature of the world at the moment. What will it be in this coming three months? We didn't even mention Trump. I think there's a lot of toxicity coming into US politics again. And in the middle of the coming quarter, you have the debt ceiling issue of raising the U.S. debt ceiling—if that was to be swallowed into the Trump vortex and the Republican-Democrat uh, face-off—things could get a little wobbly. Uh, one to watch. But Mike Muller, as always, head of Vital in Asia, really appreciate it. Great to see you, uh, and uh, Christoph Rule, of course one of the world's best on the subjects and traveling all over the world, spreading his wisdom. Christoph, we look forward to seeing you back in, uh, in the UAE soon. Uh, have a great week, everybody. Have a great month and look forward to catching up with you guys uh, uh, in the coming period. All the best. Take care.